Good morning, Shore. My name's Jordan. If you're standing at home, you can sit down, but you're probably already sitting. Um, like I said, my name's Jordan. So glad to be here. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're continuing in our series called Good Grace on the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, let me tell you, as I started preaching a few years ago, uh, there were instantly a lot of topics, a lot of scriptures that I was passionate and fired up to teach on. And, and many, by God's grace, I've been able to preach on, you know, like, like grace, worship, our purpose in pain and suffering, sex, relationships. But I'll be honest with you, the topic that we're on today, which is picking up right where James left off last week, about generosity, about money, is one that I never really felt a super strong desire to preach on until recently. And it's not because I didn't agree with what the scriptures said about it, but more so because I am personally so cautious and so desperately don't want to come off as that guy or like that church. What do I mean? Well, like the church or the ministries that use their platforms, twist the scriptures in an effort to use people to make money, that lead people astray by saying things that aren't true. Like, if you would just give your money to God, then he will give you health and wealth and happiness. And you'll never have any problems. You know, movements that preach on the prosperity gospel that would say if you give your money to the church, you will no longer have any financial problems. Everything's going to be great. And so I'm weary of that. And I know even tuning in this morning, there's probably some who are skeptics to Christianity, skeptics to the Bible, and you're under the assumption that the church is just about gaining power and wants to take all your money from you. I promise you that's not what I'm doing here. That's not the goal of the shore at all. In the end, I'm not interested in your money. I'm interested in the state of your heart and your soul. And so this was something that previously, if you'd ask me, like, hey, what are your top 100 topics you want to preach on? Uh, this probably wouldn't have made the list. But, but in sitting in this text over the last little bit, I know with confidence that that was actually unloving for me to think of. It's unloving for the church to think that way to ignore what the scriptures, what God himself really says about money. Because the scriptures have a lot of profound truths about money. In fact, money is one of the few external indicators that the scripture gives us as a window into what our hearts truly value. The scriptures would say, you want to know what you really believe? Not what you say you believe. Not what you think you believe. You want to know what you actually hold fast to in life? Check how you spend. And before I go any further, let me just say, deep breath, everyone. Relax. I'm not taking some kind of special offering this morning. That's not what this is about. This isn't a push for money. No, this is a loving pleading with you over the state of your soul and your relationship with the Father. And like I said, the scripture says a lot about money. Let me just show you a few of the many verses about money just to set the stage for today. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So the person who says, my goal, my desire, what I'm after in life is money, is a person who will never, ever be satisfied. Or how about Jesus in Matthew 6, 
He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So you can't have the mentality like, I'm going to make lots of money so that I can make much of God. Jesus says, no, eventually you'll have to betray one of them. Or 1 Timothy, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so here's what I want to contend with you this morning as we go through our text. That Christian maturity, that a godly life full of joy is impossible until you lay the way you feel about money and how you see your money at the feet of Jesus Christ. That money is going to be one of those things that hinders our Christian maturity until we learn to see it as God has taught us to see it. We need to line money up with what he designed it to be. And so in our text in 2 Corinthians 9, it's going to show us two things this morning. It's going to show us, one, why the mark of a Christian is generosity, and two, it's going to show us what happens when we are generous. So number one, why the mark of a Christian is generosity. Let me read a couple verses for you here. 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 6. He says this, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So right out of the gate, Paul actually tells us why we don't give, why we shouldn't give. He says the motivation for Christian generosity is not based on a command from God for us to give. Like, he tells us we don't give to earn favor from God in a way that we are reluctant to do so, in a way that we're only doing it to make God happy, in a way that has a mindset of, I better do this, I better give so that God's happy with me, I better give so God doesn't destroy me, I better give so God blesses me and is good to me. Paul says, no, we don't give out of a reluctant, begrudging heart. And then he goes on to tell us why we do give, and there's a big reason why. Pick it up in verse 7 again. He says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And so the foundation of Christian generosity, don't miss this, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that's all you hear this morning, then I'm satisfied. The foundation of our generosity is that we did not save ourselves or earn our salvation, but it was freely given to us 
on the cross of Christ, that we were purchased by God through Jesus by no work of our own. We did not earn salvation. We did not clean ourselves up. We did not complete this checklist of good behaviors to earn God's favor. No, he has freely and lovingly justified us Not when we were at our best, while we were at our worst. That's the gospel message. It's that you and I could not, but he did. It's that while you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for you. We saw this verse a few weeks back in chapter 5. Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have been freely given this, and so we freely give. The basis of our generosity is the cross. It's not outside in religion. It's not let me appease God with this sacrifice. That's not it. No, it is a transformed heart. And so then we can begin to see a line being drawn, okay, between those who have experienced by the Spirit of God the free grace and mercy and then those who have a list of moral rules and are only giving to try to earn God's favor. One heart will say, I have been freely given by no work of my own and, I, and therefore I am freely living open-handedly with all he has given to me. And the others would say, this is what I owe God I'll give this to him to get him off my back, throw some good karma, some good juju out there, so he'll leave me alone. Here's your 10%. You better bless me. Paul says, no, we don't give reluctantly. We don't give under compulsion. Christians out there, we give because grace has been lavished upon us. And that should overwhelm us in a great way that our response to this incredible gift is to give in exchange. And then he goes on and talks about this idea of ownership and how we view all that we have in verse 10. Look at it with me. He says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. It's a really uh, interesting wordplay that God's doing with us here. He's basically saying to us, or to the farmer here, he's saying, hey, uh, is that bread yours? Uh, yeah, the, the bread's mine. Of course it's mine. Okay, well, where did you get the bread from? Well, I planted some seed, grew some wheat, baked some bread. Okay, well, where'd you get the seeds from? And, and on and on and on it goes to the root of where this stuff came from. And so again, if the foundation of Christian generosity is the cross of Jesus Christ— then that foundation leads us to understand that everything that we have and everything that exists already belongs to God. It's not ours. It never has been. It's all his, and he's given it to us to be stewards of it for his purpose. So so think about this. Like, maybe you're a great uh, businessman or businesswoman. Where did that come from? Right? Your, your response is probably, which is a totally fine response, well, I went to school, went to college, got a business major, uh, I learned from this person, I had this internship, I hustled really hard, and then you became successful. Great. But if you think about it, there were probably other men and women with similar desires to you 
who took the exact same courses, you know, had the same desires, spoke to the same people, maybe even got better grades than you, who in the end are terrible at business? Or are you talented in the arts? You know, painting, designing, music, all that kind of stuff. Where did that come from? Well, likely you worked hard, you practiced, you took a lot of lessons, but can we be honest? There's some people that you could, you could work hard with them every day, give them all the lessons in the world, and they'll never be able to play an instrument. They just don't have that in them. And many of you probably saying amen right now. Or in my case, like, I don't care how much training you give me, I will never be able to draw or paint in a way that it doesn't look like a two-year-old did it just not going to happen. Let's play a game of Telestrations or Pictionary when this is all over, and I'll prove that to you. I just can't figure that out. And it was like that in my hockey career. Like, there were a ton of guys, like hundreds of guys I trained with who wanted it so bad, who worked so hard, who watched film, were in the gym, on the ice, but they just didn't have it. See, the abilities and the skills and the things that you have have been given to you by God, for God, and all that you have is his. And to view anything that you have as if it is your own possession or your own doing is to be missing the reality of God's design. And so it is with our money, with our stuff. As a, as a former child, okay, my wife would say a current child, I know that children are a picture of how this plays out, of how verse 10 plays out. Here's what I mean, and I borrow this illustration. Picture this scenario with me. After church today, go online or go to Walmart, go to Best Buy, make sure you wear a mask, socially distance, and buy for your kid a Nintendo Switch or a PS5. And right now your kids are like, I love church, right? Buy them a Nintendo Switch. Give it to them, say, here you go. Drive them home, plug it into the TV, and say, it's all yours, buddy. Have fun. Go run a few errands for a bit, you know, maybe grab something to eat. Come back after a little bit and say, okay, daddy's turn. What are they going to say? No, it's mine. Are you kidding me? It's mine. Whoa, 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 I just bought that for you. Yeah, you bought it for me. It's mine, my PlayStation. Get out of here. And so you'll have to break it down for them like God just did. Okay, well, uh, I bought that for you with my hard-earned money. Oh, and oh, it's hooked up to my television? And you're sitting on my couch? And are those my Cheetos you're eating as well? Right? You'll have to break it down for them. What's my point? Well, what ends up happening for many is we behave in relation to God and money and stuff like spoiled children, and we say, it's mine. Don't touch. And he's got to remind us again and again, whoa, 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 who gave that to you? See, it's the, it's the biblical understand, understanding and the Christian mindset that because of the finished work of Jesus, that nothing we own is actually ours, but rather is a gift to us from God. And let me just say that the freedom available that we can begin to live in with that truth is incredible if we can grasp this. Like, it's a contentment that you read about all over the Bible. In fact, one of my favorite books of the Bible, um, Habakkuk, it's only three short chapters. You can read it after this in five minutes. He lives in a type of freedom that I wish I lived in. 
Like he'll basically say, if tonight for dinner we're eating like kings, we're killing the fatted calf, we have fruit and vegetables growing everywhere, and we're going to stuff our faces, or if we have no food on the table and we're struggling just to survive, then praise Jesus because he's given me himself and that's all that matters. Whatever you have for me, whatever you've given me, as long as I have you, I don't care. Like, what do you do to rattle that guy? He's a great example of understanding that nothing is ours, but everything is a gift from God that we are to be stewards of. And when we can understand that everything is his and ownership is a myth, that we are stewards, that can enable us to take the next step in our relationship with the Father, which we'll see Paul calls an enriched life, which is what we're all after, aren't we? Look with me at verse 11. Paul says, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So again, to reset the stage here, the cross is the foundation of Christian generosity. And that moves into understanding ourselves as stewards, not as owners. And that leads us into what he calls here an enriched life, where generosity from God leads to more generosity in his kingdom. Okay, a little more homework for you. The the book of Ecclesiastes, that was given to us basically to break down if anything in your life, if any pursuit in your life is anything other than God, then it's a life that's in vain. It's a life the author would call meaningless. He says it's like chasing after the wind if if what you're after is something here on this earth. He would say that no matter how successful you are, no matter how popular you are, no matter how much notoriety you acquire, you're not going to be able to take any of it with you. You're going to die one day, and it's not going in the ground with you. But with the cross as our foundation and stewardship as our understanding, we can move into an enriched life where we can live open-handed and understand that our neighborhoods that we're in, our workplaces we're in, our money, our time, all of it is under the sovereign plan of God's reconciling and redeeming work in the world. And so we can give freely. And again, I'm not just talking about giving to the church. You're going to have to wrestle with the Lord of what this looks like for you. Like we give freely. We open our houses. We practice hospitality. We, we are radically generous because we know that this life is not the end of the story and we want to lead people towards what's next. And so that's why the mark of a Christian is generosity because he was first generous to us. But the second thing we're going to see now is what happens when we are generous. Let's pick it up in verse 12. He says, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. So what is our generosity to be flowing from? He says, the confession of the grace of God. That's our motive. That's our foundation. That God has first been generous to us. That's the second time Paul's brought that up in this text. He goes on. 
and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So here's what happens when Christians live the generous lives that we have been called to live in, knowing that God has first been generous to us. Two things happen. Number one, the needs of people get met. The needs of people get met. And sure, you guys crush this one. Like, I am proud to call the shore home because of how well you guys do at this one. The needs of people get met all over the place. Like hungry people get fed. Sick people are cared for. Hurting people are loved. Cold people get blankets and jackets and on and on and on I could go. Sure, you have done a phenomenal job of this and the Father is so pleased. But not just the shore. The church historically has done a great job of this. The church has built hospitals, built schools, built clinics, See, where we are radically generous, the felt needs of people get met. Something that's kind of shocking to me, you know, I grew up in North Van, and this place has changed so much, and and for the good. You know, there's like so many amazingly beautiful new neighborhoods all over the place. It's developed and changed so much. I love it. But within this community, within North Van, West Van, There are people, maybe on our block, people we walk by, who walk in a shocking level of poverty that's heartbreaking. It's why I love that we as the shore partner with organizations like the Harvest Project and we use our benevolent fund to to help people in our community because when, when Christians live radically generous lives, the felt needs of people get met in powerful ways. But it goes beyond that. It's not just that felt needs are being met, because, look, any organization can do that. You don't have to be a Christian to give to someone, right? But what sets us apart? It's not only that felt needs are met, but the response to their needs being met, Paul says, leads to them knowing Jesus and praising God. This is huge because in the end, we're not just in the business of meeting needs. We're not just bringing hope to this life, but to the next. And so when people ask us, hey, why why are you doing this? Why are you so generous? Well, we can point to the fact that God has first been so generous to us that he has saved us beyond this life. Oh, you want me to break that down? I'd love to. I'd love to share that with you. And if you've been around or studied poverty at all or, God forbid, walked in it, you know that one of the biggest things that sets into hearts the most is hopelessness. And what does the gospel do? It restores hope. It restores hope for the present and also for the future. It gives hope for their kids And so we're not just bringing food and clothes. No, we bring the gospel. We bring hope. 
It goes back to the foundation of our generosity that God himself was first generous to us, that he gave us the greatest gift we could ever possibly receive, himself. And so in response, if it costs me everything, if it costs me my life, I'll serve you. If it costs me my hard-earned money, I'll love you. If it costs me hours and hours of my time, I'll help you. By whatever means necessary, I'll be there for you and I will share with you the hope that I have, not just for this life, but for the next. This is how we've been called to live, open-handed in our generosity. And look, our mission here is to make Jesus known. If in any way we are to shine like Jesus in our community as a light unto the world, it's in this area. Where our money isn't our God, it doesn't control us, but rather we reflect that we have been set free and we are living for something greater. And so then we can start to think like, what kind of car I drive doesn't define me. I don't have to go insane to buy a certain type of car in the hopes that you view me a certain way. I've been set free from that. My identity is found in what Jesus has done for me. I don't have to look or dress or act a certain way. I don't need to buy a certain house for my reputation because where I live doesn't define me. See, in the end, the gospel sets us free from all of that. And some of us, I know this isn't everyone, but some, the fears, the weight, the complexities of our life go back to this idea of God being, our God being money of getting it, of sustaining it. And maybe that's rooted in this idea that this is how I want people to perceive me. So maybe I'll even get into debt just to present a false version of who I actually am. Let me say, you don't have to walk in that anymore. Jesus has set you free from that kind of pressure. He has given you a new identity as a loved and adopted child of God. And since you don't have to walk in that anymore, and you don't have to have that kind of car or those clothes or whatever, now you can be set free to live generously as Jesus has been oh so generous to you. And now that we're generous, the felt needs of people get met, and it leads them to knowing Jesus. And so as I start to wind this thing down, I know how many of us operate, and I'm there too. We like practical. And maybe you're like, okay, I get it. Got to be generous. How much should I give then? (laughs) Notice I haven't said an amount this whole time. I don't think it's about that. You got to wrestle with that with the Father, about what to give, where to give. I think that mindset is really part of the problem here. Because in the end, I'm not talking to you about a tithe or or giving 10% or whatever, because you could be giving 10, 20, 50% with the wrong heart. This isn't about that. It's about the state of your heart. That's what I care about. More importantly, that's what God cares about. And so I don't know what's going on in your heart this morning. I don't know what you truly value. Only you know that. And here's my challenge for you this week, both independently and then maybe with your spouse or your friend, I want you to ask this question and wrestle with it. 
what do you say you believe and what do you actually believe? Well, how do we know what we actually believe? How do we know what's really going on in our hearts? Well, what the text has been saying the last two weeks is that if we could put our bank statements in front of us and then ask the question, do I really believe what I say I believe? Is there evidence of that in how you spend? Got to wrestle with that. Again, I'm not talking about what you give to the church. This goes beyond that. I'm not asking for any offering today. Do you really believe that this life is it? Or do you believe that we have been put here by God's grace alone as stewards of his in his ministry of reconciliation for the purposes of the kingdom of God? Which one is it? Because I believe how we spend is going to start to reveal that to us, reveal what we truly believe. And it's something we all have to wrestle with, and believe me, I'm right there with you. And let me say that God's grace is sufficient for all. Like, maybe you've made financial decisions that you know were foolish, and you're ashamed of them. Look, there's grace in that. Jesus died for that. The book of Lamentations tells us that his mercies are new every morning. And this is as good a morning as any to wrestle with this and to pray to God for help in, in putting to death in us whatever it is that might be in our hearts that keeps longing for more and more and nicer and nicer. And we can finally do the work in our hearts and are able to move into a state of cheerful generosity because God has been so generous to you first. In fact, he's given you the only thing with any eternal value, salvation. That's an enriched life. Let's go into a time of response here. Invite Jill up. But I want to ask, what is, what is Paul saying that wealth is anyways? Eternally, What is wealth? Well, it has nothing to do with what's in our bank account, our cars, our house, our stuff. It's not what Paul has been talking about in these chapters. The wealth that he's been talking about is being in relationship with the living God and to be his intimate friend and his adopted son or daughter. And everything that he has made has been made for you. Have you thought about that? The sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the ocean, everything, all for you. All the joy that you could ever dreamed of has been given to you by an infinite God, all for you. That's wealth. That's wealth that can't be taken from you. And what Paul and God is trying to tell us this morning is you see that this distinctive Christian generosity is based on the reality that the one who had the wealth, the one who had it all, Jesus, looked upon the hopelessness of sinners, you and I. 
He saw us being judged rightly by a holy God and out of an exceedingly great love and mercy for us, he became poor. He put himself under the wrath of God for us. He was separated from the Father. He cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, because he left the wealth that he had in heaven to die in our place so that we who deserved nothing but judgment would instead have the infinite riches of glory, have infinite wealth. We would have what he has. That's why we're generous. As one pastor said, it is not in the nature of a sinful human being to be generous, but it is in the nature of a redeemed sinner to be generous. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace you've given us. for the hope you've given us, for the eternal wealth that can only be found in you. And Lord, this morning, I pray for my brothers and sisters, and I just pray for transformed hearts that are rooted in the gospel, that everything would flow out of us being so rooted, so steadfast in the cross of Christ, that would change the way we live, not to try to earn favor, earn salvation? No, but because we have first been changed by you. We have been given so greatly from you, Lord. And so I just pray for areas where we got a tight grip on things, that you would just help us soften that grip, see that it's all from you, for your kingdom, for your glory, but oh, do we need your help in that. We need you to transform us. We need you to help us think less of us and more of you and what you're doing here. So this morning, would you just let us sit under the amazing truth of knowing that you paid for it all on our behalf. You set us free. You gave us the greatest gift of all and may that lead us into reflecting you in how we give to the world around us. Help us, Lord. We need you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.